One of the big challenges of running a copywriting business is finding clients. And unless you have retainers, once you find a good client and do the work, you've got to go back out there and find another client and then another. But what if the great clients that you have could stick with you, offering project after project, month after month, so you don't have to spend your time prospecting and instead you can focus on problem solving. That's what Jared McDonald, our guest for the 242nd episode of the Copywriter Club podcast does. His average client relationship lasts almost two and a half years. And we asked him what he does that makes his clients so happy. And he shared a few ideas that any copywriter can implement into their business. Before we hear what Jared has to say, this podcast episode is brought to you by the copywriter think tank mastermind, which Jared has participated in. The Think Tank is our private mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to challenge each other, create new revenue streams in their businesses, receive coaching from the two of us, and ultimately grow to six figures or more. Up until last year, we only opened the Think Tank once a year, but today we invite a few new members each month. If you've been looking for a mastermind group to help you grow, visit copywriterthinktank.com to find out more. Okay, so let's jump into our interview with Jared with this question about how he became a copywriter, a marketing consultant, and a UX strategist. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, from a from a story perspective, do you want the short version, long version? No, I'll spare you. Medium version. Yeah, medium. Yeah. In the <laughs> medium details. Yeah. I mean, I started out, uh, in experiential marketing and doing sales as well. And then, uh, it really wasn't until I went to go to want to go to school to be a diplomat in foreign languages for some odd reason. And then, uh, as you both know, my kind of cancer diagnosis and that whole journey kind of led me out of that path. And it couldn't have been the best. It was literally the best thing because I managed to get a gig at a, at a, startup downtown Toronto because I'm Canadian and uh, yeah, and then started there, starting content marketing, content strategy. And that's kind of where the words coming from a sports journalism background, uh, Rob, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. So was covering baseball and hockey for a long time on the side. And uh, yeah, and it wasn't until I met you fine folks in the copy hackers mastermind where, you know, words can sell and uh, the rest is kind of history. So moving from there, I just, I love the research side and I still do write copy periodically now, but not as much anymore. And, uh, yeah, and I just, I just love the, the, the research side. So at the same time, shortly after I met you both, I segued into, you know, user experience, uh, through the Nielsen Norman group and really kind of saw a lot of overlaps with user experience and copy research. And then, uh, it kind of just blossomed from there. And since then I've worked with e-commerce clients, financial, uh, startups as well, and heavily on strategy right now but used to write copy. <laughs> so you started out with uh, experiential marketing. You said, tell us more about that. That may not be a term that everybody's heard, like obviously referring to it, the experience and, and marketing experience, but yeah, what is that? And what were you doing? Yeah, it's funny because no, I didn't even really know what experiential marketing is. And, uh, you know, in the world that we are in with list building and uh, wanting to, you know, create a list and provide an experience. And this was kind of doing that, but in person. So it was at sporting events and essentially maybe we can link a, a photo in the show notes, but essentially it was, uh, you know, backpacks with full sound and laptops inside, and there were screens over top of your head. 
and you do outdoor. I know Kira is already picturing this. This is great. So you'd be outside at uh, sporting events or tailgate parties and those kinds of things. And brands at the time like Blackberry and stuff would hire us. And you're basically providing an in-person experience and you'd take photos of people with cameras and you'd have a wrist keyboard that you would enter in their email to email them photos of the event. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of list building. And obviously back then I wouldn't have had any clue I'd even go into user experience or anything like that. Uh, so it's kind of funny how things, uh, I've always been prioritizing the experience and uh, now I'm doing it digitally instead of in person. I was hoping that you were one of the guys in the president's costumes running around the track at like, you know, a nationals game or, you know, whatever, but not quite that. Yeah. A president or the big celery costume or a hot wing. Exactly. And then you, you fall down intentionally <laughs> to let the other. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great. Would people walk up to you? Like what was on the screen above your head? Yeah, I know. It's so it's so mysterious. But there was I mean, it was promos for kind of a Blackberry model or features. Uh, or we had like a camera app. There were different apps because there was a laptop in the backpack. There was a lot of different apps and functionality that we could we could do with it. But the two most common ones were just kind of a video playing with full sound. And because the t the screen was over top of your head, you'd stick out in a in a crowd, and people would come up to you. Yeah. And we 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 would the people I was managing at the time, like we hired really extroverted people who just loved going up and talking to others and just kind of breaking the ice. So it was it was a lot of fun. This seems like a job you should have had, Kira. Like, this I would like be so bad at that. I would be, I'd be like, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. But I feel like, like Jared's friendly and that would be perfect. And, and like you're tall. So you stand out the screen, like people can see the screen. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was just going to say the same thing about you. I was going to say the same no, thing about you. Here. People would ask you, wow, you're so, you're so tall. And you probably don't get that often right here. No, so. I don't get that enough. So that would have been a good job for me. What lessons did you learn from that, that experience of having that job where you're out there and you're taking photos of people and marketing in that way that lessons that could help freelance copywriters today it's interesting sometimes to apply in-person experiences or you know even conferences now but you know but back then i mean i think really wanting to provide a unique kind of experience and i think there's a lot of opportunity for copywriters like us to to really go outside the norm and really create a unique experience whether it's in your sales process or onboarding or there's so many opportunities to delight and there's, and that's really what this was about back then was yes, you would take people's photos and be able to email them a photo of the event afterwards. And then obviously the, the brand would have the contact info and the same kinds of things. But I think it was just, it was just so much, so much better to just be there with your friends. You didn't have a camera and you could get a photo emailed to you. And that was just one kind of example. But I think really the, the, the main thing was just to be just to look for opportunities to delight in the experiences that you're having, whether it's with clients or your or your your students or members or however we want to call them. Uh, but just really and that's kind of where you, know, you hear customer experience right now. And it's a it's a buzz term. But what does that actually mean? And I think really just wanting to find opportunities to, to delight and uh, over over deliver. So I know we're going to come back to this idea because it's something that you're focused on in your business today. But before we get to what you're doing today, you're, I think, the first almost diplomat we've ever had on the podcast too. So what, yeah, what was the draw about there? You. Yeah. What were you thinking? You're thinking like, hey, I'm going to be what? The ambassador to Nigeria, Egypt, uh, China? Like what? what's the thought process? And what were you thinking? Oh my gosh. Well, I've always, I've always had a thing for languages. I've always enjoyed communication and building rapport with people. And obviously this comes out in sales and other elements now, but yeah, I mean, I was in French immersion since grade one, uh, and early immersion, obviously being in Canada, French is a big thing. And, uh, 
yeah, I just, I grew a liking to it. I took German in high school and I just, I'd always loved languages. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go for something like this. And the career choices for whatever reason were being an ambassador. And to be honest, I didn't have this kind of foreign policy real interest, but I just really liked the languages and kind of being what's called a polyglot where you have able to speak multiple languages. So yeah, it was a fun experience. Like before the health stuff took me out and uh, that was a whole fun experience too. But yeah, I mean, in your morning you have Spanish and then the afternoon you have Mandarin Chinese and your brain's melting because it's very different languages, but it was a lot of fun. So which languages can you speak today? Oh my gosh, we're going to we're going to pivot now. We're going to do part of the interview Not in German, English. part of it in French. <laughs> yeah. Uh no, I mean right now just English and French. Uh I mean I can speak a little bit of Spanish and I've lost the German. Uh it's a nice romance language and um I I tried I the the, the Mandarin Chinese has 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 vanished, but being able to write it was kind of the the most fun for a little bit. That's so cool. So you mentioned the health stuff took you out. Um can you talk a little bit more about what you know? What health stuff t- took you out, and and how how you came back from that too, and what that even looked like? Yeah, yeah. I think just looking back on it now, I think you you never have you never have things figured out. I think you you can have a plan. Sometimes plans change, and mine did in a drastic way. Um, but I think just kind of taking it head on, and I think just looking at looking back at it, I think being able to have being dealt the wrong hand or being or winning the wrong lottery, as people called it. And um, essentially looking back on it now and realizing that that was the best thing that could have happened because I never would have been where I am now if it wasn't for that time, not to mention learning a lot and bonding with people and just um, being being able to just have a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of fun at the time, but having a lot of fun talking about it after the fact, um, just to people I know and certain things. But yeah, so in short, it was it was uh, exam week when I was at school and it was just like I had gotten back from a destination wedding. And, you know, you get back on a Saturday, you've got multiple calls from your doctor's office and you can't call them back because they're closed. So that's kind of a funky thing. And I kind of went to church on Sunday morning. It was kind of like, this is, this is out of sorts. Uh, this is uneasy feeling. And then Monday morning, it was like a suspicion of vesicular cancer. And then, you know, tomorrow morning, you're going to see a specialist and then you're in the OR the next day. And then three weeks later, you're in chemotherapy. And, you know, it was a whole whirlwind, but like what an experience and just being able to meet people at the hospital and meet, uh, just amazing doctors and nurses. And yeah, just, I, I, I would, it sounds really bizarre, but I would not change anything. I I'm grateful for the whole, it's probably about a year because there were multiple surgeries, chemo for three months, lost my hair, the whole deal. But, um, I mean, fortunately my hair grew back the same color and the same style. (laughs) Um, for a while, my first, my first hair growth was all curly and uh, I was worried that I was going to have n- nothing against curly hair, but I was a little worried. Um, but I just, I met women who had had black hair and it grew back red and curly and just weird, weird things. So I was really, really fortunate and thankful overall. So now I've heard people share stories like that in marketing and, and in copywriting. And it seems like going through something like that builds empathy in a way that maybe other experiences don't. Have you found that? And, you know, has it made you more empathetic, your copy different uh, or your approach to clients different, having gone through such uh, a traumatic and, and I mean, in some ways, life-threatening, you know, experience? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, it definitely, I mean, perspective is the word that kind of comes to mind. And I think when you're, I think if I was to really think about kind of an overarching kind of theme or just really, you don't know what anybody's battling. You don't know what anybody's going through. And I think, especially in this age of public personas and social media and visibility and being out there, uh, some people are really real when they share, but I think that's kind of something that 
I mean, the, the cancer stuff definitely added. Um, but I think just really just my whole life, just kind of people are going through, people all have challenges. There's no, you know, your challenges are harder than other people's. Uh, you know, I had a friend who lost his mom and then he lost his dad three weeks before his wedding. And he's like, man, like, this is nothing. You, you went through cancer. And I'm like, no, you don't have either of your parents. And I'm like, and at the end of the day, there's, there's no tearing to struggle. You know, it's just, if, if somebody's having quote, a minor struggle, you know, or whatever it is, they're just, you don't know what anybody's going through. So I think, yeah, Rob, tying back to what you're saying about empathy, I think it's just really important to kind of maybe take yourself out of it and not really compare somebody else's experience to yours and just kind of be in, you know, understanding about their own situation. And at, at the end of the day, it's all unfortunate. I mean, it'd be great if none of us had any struggles to go through or, uh, but they do shape you, they, they shape your character. And um, yeah, I think just really not, not being quick to judge others or being quick to uh, have a comment on what they're going through, because you probably have no idea. What advice would you give to someone who may be listening and is going through a struggle? Like you said, there's varying degrees. So it could be, you know, really bad or it feels huge to them. What would you say to them if they're in the middle of it and feeling really alone based off your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think just first off, I mean, you, you aren't alone. You know, I think you, there, there's people who do care about you. There's people who want to hear what you're going through and you can reach out. Um, and I, I think, it's just, it's so hard sometimes, you know, cause when you, you know, especially mindset for what we do and especially if you're doing something new or there's so much, there's so many mental challenges and struggles alone, let alone real life and other uh, hiccups or obstacles or roadblocks, whatever you want to call them that either intentionally come in or surprisingly come in. So I think, yeah, I mean, just trying to see the positive out of it. And I think uh, again, at, at the time, I mean, obviously I was upset, you know, with, with something like that, but um, almost measuring it down the road. I mean, you're, you're going through a storm, you're being tested for something for a reason, uh, but you, you will get through it. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine has a, I, has a saying, you know, whether things are good or bad, they will, things will change. And I think it'll, it'll always, it'll get better. Uh, and you will kind of come out and you'll learn something from it. You'll be shaped from it. And I think it's hard to look at the positive during something. And I won't say that I, I won't lie to you both. You know, I didn't, have a smile on my face every single day, but I think, uh, yeah, but I think just wanting to, yeah, I think just taking the positive out of it and realizing that it will come to an end, whatever it is. So I'm going to change our subject just a little bit, which is maybe sort of a, a cold turning from this amazing human experience to talking back about your business, but tell us about your business today, the kinds of clients that you're working with. Uh, you know, you mentioned UX and e-com and, you know, the, the way that you've brought different things together. I know you've worked with a really big bank client for you know a long time. So just tell us about your business today. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I've always, <laughs> there's two things about me. One is going against the grain and not really doing what everyone's doing. And that has been good sometimes and it's been bad sometimes, but it's uniquely me and I won't, I won't, uh, I won't fight that. Uh, but the other thing too, is doing things that don't scale. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in that, especially early on in your business and whether that's over delivering for a client or going to a conference without any expectations of, you know, getting a client or something like that. Uh, and just the things that you're told not to do at sometimes, but, um, yeah, I mean, my business started out, uh, initially doing copywriting for clients, uh, a lot of web copy, uh, and some email sequences. And then, you know, like I was saying earlier with really tying in the research side and the user experience side, uh, it's evolved. And I think one example of kind of doing something different is I haven't, I I've worked with clients for a long time, you know, so my client average is 28 months and, um, I, 
<laughs> once I kind of get in with them, uh, I'm always kind of not selling the next project to make money, but it's usually when I see, once you kind of get the lay of the land and you pull the curtain back and you see so many different opportunities, if the client is good, it doesn't exhibit red flags and, and all these things, then, uh, then I just continue to work with them over a longer period of time. And that's been a lot of fun for me because I'm huge on relationships and yeah, it's just been a little bit of a different approach in the age of onboarding, offboarding, productized services. And those are great, 100%. But I think for me, just being able to, and whether it's a retainer client or whether it's kind of multiple projects, kind of back to back. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously making sure the scope is really narrow and, and or uh, defined rather. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of been one thing is just really, I, I'll work with the client and then have them for a couple of years. And that saves me a lot of time on the back end of not having to prospect as much. I still prospect. That's one thing I learned the hard way is wanting uh, when you think you have a full client load, or even if you have a wait list and you, you take the foot off the gas for prospecting or building your pipeline. And then if circumstances change, you're kind of caught there with your tail between your legs because you, you haven't been engaging and um, networking and building up your pipeline. But again, a lesson learned. And uh, yeah, and then right now, I mean, it's it, it's evolved. So I've done a lot of uh, customer journey mapping and a lot of uh, just strategy work. So marketing strategy, user experience strategy, uh, largely around the website and then funnels as well. So kind of connecting the dots and again, finding opportunities to delight at each phase of the funnel. And um, yeah, so right now, I mean, focusing a lot on customer journeys and using thing, something like active campaign to tie it all together. And uh and customer journey could be your sales process, could be your onboarding, your could be your upsell to your your existing clients, wh whatever it is. But kind of looking at everything in a journey perspective and eliminating all the buzzwords of like marketing automation and personalization and segmentation and all this gobbledygook. I have so many questions for you. <laughs> I, <laughs> if your average time working with a client is 28 months, that's so impressive. I mean, I feel like I'm happy if it's six months. I feel like that's huge. Um, so if I want to start working with clients for 28 months on average, what are some steps I can take? Maybe it's just a mindset shift or maybe it's actually something more practical than that. So I can start to extend these relationships and provide value over a longer period of time. The number one thing at least I've learned over the years and would say is owning the consultant or the strategist relationship early. So owning it in the sales process. And if you didn't do it in the sales process for that first project uh, or project, as some Canadians like to say, I would um, make sure while you're working on the engagement to give them, basically enlighten them on things that they hadn't noticed before and almost be assuming that they're going to hire you for the next project. So you're, you're in the middle, say it's a three month, say it's a, if you did an audit or a productized service to start, and then you did maybe a two to three month kind of bridge deal where it's kind of, okay, we've, we've worked on a project. Let's see what monthly is like. And we either get a really big win in that 90 days, or we go our separate ways afterwards. And I like that as a little bit of a litmus test to kind of, cause yes, having a client for a long period of time is great for you, but also you want to make sure that the client is worth it. You want to make sure that the client is, um, again, not showing those red flags and respecting your time. And, uh, again, whatever your, your boundaries are, but, um, yeah, I would say that's that's kind of the first thing is really owning that strategist role and making sure to share with them what things that they haven't that they weren't really aware of and uh, owning that and kind of just saying, okay, after this we can and almost pre-selling, well not almost, 
yes, pre-selling the next project and priming them for the next project. So say you were doing a three month gig, you know, maybe in the middle of month two or near the end of month two, you're already putting out feelers for that next project. And if there's any objections, you overcome those in your weekly meetings already. So that is just kind of, and you have, you know, that signature on that SOW before you're done that first project, which takes a bit of extra time, but yeah. Let's talk about that process a little bit because you've, you've mentioned a few things like, you know, the weekly meetings, uh, you know, owning the consultant role or whatever. Uh, I, I'm thinking like, how can we make this totally actionable for somebody who may be just starting out or maybe they've been doing this for a couple of years, but they've never been able to put together something like this. What exactly does that look like in order? You know, I've been hired to write a website. I write the website. Like, how do I start pre-selling the next thing? Or how do I start acting as a consultant when I've been asked to only write copy? What does that look like? Well, it's starting in your sales process first off. And again, if that's ideal, and again, essentially just for me, it comes back to running the show and running the show as an expert. You know, clients want to depend on you. You know what you're doing. You've done this before. They they will know and they can tell if you are if you are owning the process and saying, okay, here's what I need from you next, et cetera, et cetera. And you just kind of line up the pieces. They're going to feel like, oh, this is so great. Like you yep. Okay, great. I will, I will see this. I will submit this for you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you can't do it in the sales process, I think really when you are already underway, trying to find a, another win that they weren't already aware of. So I kind of build in a bit of scope time for over delivering or to find a bit of a surprise where sure. So Robin, your example, if they hired you to write web copy, okay, well maybe you are learning something else on the side, or maybe you noticed that there's, um, you know, an issue with their, with their marketing software or their, their headline on their website, whatever it is you, and it's, and it's not part of your scope. And then that kind of is the big, for me, a bit of an X factor where they say, Hey, we hire because every client I've worked with, that's how it starts. It, it's, it's literally been, we hired you for X. Oh, I didn't know about X or sorry. I didn't know about Y, or I didn't know you could do this. And then that kind of opens the door to say, okay, yeah, I can. We're used to working together. We vetted each other. We like each other. Shall we chat? So that type of pre-selling, you might bring it up when you're a month into a project and it might be on a, like a weekly check-in call where you surprise and delight them. Um, or wh what's the timing and how's the, what's the best approach? I mean, sometimes you won't have weekly calls. You know, I, sometimes, I mean, a weekly call is nice, but whenever there's a check-in with the client to kind of maybe review some copy or to hop on a call and, you know, getting them on a call, you're able to ask kind of some probing questions and put out some feelers for whether or not they're going to be interested in what you're mentioning or if they're resistant to it. And, and that's really where, for me, the switch flips is when they view you as a peer, when they view you as a partner, as opposed to a gun for hire, uh, wanting, you know, here, do this for us kind of thing. When you kind of bring something new to the table and say, Hey, have you, have you thought about doing this before? If not, why not? Do you have any examples, other examples of probing questions? Oh my gosh. So many. Uh, but so I'm, yeah, I, I have geeked out on this a lot. Uh, but really, I mean, we, we are copywriters. We do voice of customer research. We have sales calls and, you know, any, really anything with that starts with a what and a how. Um, but one of my favorite ones is, can you give me an example of that? And that is just such an awesome probing question because the client may, because uh, I mean, you, you hear all this stuff about mirroring and, you know, pausing because silence can be a great probe as well. So I do that a lot on voice of customer uh, interviews where if the client starts talking about something and I'm not really satisfied with the answer, or I, I think there's more there, I just kind of stop and, you know, and especially being over here in, 
North America, people like to fill the silence because they feel really awkward. Whereas, you know, somewhere in like Japan, for example, silence is more common and they really, they view it as a sign of respect to really think about their answer. So you can have three, four minutes of just silence and it would be pretty awkward if you weren't used to it, but over here, it's not a problem. And, um, yeah, so one of my favorite probing questions is, you know, can you, that, oh, that, that's great. Can you give me an example of that? Or what would be an example? What would be a good example or a bad example? There's different modifiers you can put on that, but that really, it adds specificity and just the way we're wired as humans is, you know, even in content, if you're writing blog posts or videos, showing an example brings it to life as opposed to just talking about it and it being kind of theory. Let's go deeper on the experience of this as well, because it's not just, you know, like being a consultant, it's not just asking the right questions, right? Like you're creating an experience for somebody, especially if they're lasting, you know, two years, two plus years in a client relationship. What does that look like? How do you make that experience different from what a typical copywriter would provide? Yeah. I mean, I think there, there's so many ways you could do it. When I'm thinking from a copywriting perspective, I mean, there's opportunities to repurpose voice of customer research that you've obtained. There's additional test versions of copy you can include, maybe one extra one or an additional email or educate them on A-B testing or uh, how to read the data. Like there's so, so many. But I think one thing that is one thing that's been great is that, like I said, bringing something new to the table and uh, mentioning something that they hadn't really realized. But another one is, I mean, we have so many uh, networks and connections and there's people that can really do great things that you can't do. And I have, I have been that friend to my clients every single time and brought in trusted people either on my project, not subcontracting, not that I have anything against subcontracting, but just, I like to just kind of pass it all over and bring somebody in. And that's been, that's been big. And, you know, cause clients sometimes won't know where to start and they might not have the time. And if you say, Hey, I know somebody that's great for this, talk to them. And that seems like more of the consultant role as well, right? Where you're not, it's not just all about you, but you're bringing in resources, you're bringing in help ideas, other things that uh, help move, not just the project forward, but you're, you're thinking about like bigger, bigger issues to solve, bigger problems uh, to solve. Yeah, I love what you said that about it's not just about you because, you know, that that is really the crux of everything is, you know, taking a real interest, a genuine interest. I mean, yes, you're being hired. Yes, you're being paid and you are going to do a great job. But I think really taking an and, you know, I think it's somebody where like you can't you can't teach giving a crap like you can't. Uh, and, and somebody who is hired who wants to do the job to get money versus somebody who cares about the business and wants to see them succeed. I feel like. Again, I don't have statistically significant data on this, but I think it's a night and day experience for the client. If they can tell that somebody's just performing a, a task or a job to to have to have money versus really caring about them and thinking about them and what would be best for them. Let's talk a little bit more about delighting clients because I like that's come up a lot, right? Like how do you delight clients? And I know you focus on that throughout the entire customer journey, but can we talk about the sales process just to go a little bit more narrow? Because um, that's also your specialty is like how to, you know, how to set that up, how to book the sales calls and how to conduct a great sales call. So if, you know, if I'm, I feel like I'm average at the sales process, what are some, some changes I can make to delight a prospect more or to intrigue them um, so that I land the project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, so many, you know, me, I've got one speed and it, I just keep talking and, and talking. Cause I, you know, I, I love this stuff and it's, and I love talking to both of you too. So 
yeah, I mean, from a sales process perspective or process, again, for certain Canadians, there's so much before the sales call that you can do and th to really own that process, tying back to what we were talking about before. Um, but there's also opportunities too with uh, using video as well. And again, if if you're not open to having your face on video uh, or having a video sales call, those are those are big things. And just kind of, I almost think of like a concierge kind of just having them taken care of. So, you know, sending a little you know, right before the the discovery call, if they've shown and taken the taken the actions you want them to take to show that they're going to be worthy of hopping on a sales call. And again, it's not because you're a celebrity and you know you want to treat them as a power play or anything, but they need to show you that they're interested enough to hop on a sales call with you. So there's there's a lot of opportunities, and even just simple things like sending a video kind of primer or a written primer of what to expect on the sales call. You know, hey, Kira, we've got our call in 24 hours, really looking forward to it. And kind of, and again, before I kind of go deep on that, just, just something like a meeting reminder, there's so much opportunity to make it so much better instead of it being the default Calendly with, you know, the meeting link and the time and that's it. And you can tell it's auto-generated, but you, if you had something with a bit more personality and we are copywriters, so this should be easy peasy, but, uh, something like a meeting reminder and saying, Hey, we have our call in 24 hours. I can't wait. Looking forward to again, what you meant and mentioned, maybe a pain that they had on their intake form or something like that and say, Hey, here's, here's what to expect. We're going to start right on time. I would say, um, you know, we're going to be on video. We're, we're going to be on video. So make sure that you have your camera ready. If that's going to be an issue, let me know. And, uh, just again, just what to expect. So there's no surprises. So if you show up on video and they're not, and they didn't do their hair and it like, that is going to be unbelievable from a friction perspective. And they're just going to feel, and again, it's kind of caring about them, wanting to take care of what their comfort level and just really being kind of an advisor, a good friend. And, um, you know, even some, I know some copywriters in our space already do this, but, uh, you know, proposal review calls, you know, really thinking about when you work with bigger clients, there's going to be multiple people that have sign off. So if you're working with a small business or a, you know, the business owner directly, they're the only ones that have say, but if you have a bigger team, there's no way to capture what was on that sales call to kind of sell you or evangelize you to the rest of their team. So something like a proposal screen share video on Loom, whether you're on camera or not, having that just for a couple of minutes and running through, they can send that to maybe their boss or their colleague who, who's going to have a say in the buying decision. And, um, you know, sticking with that and then I'll stop after this one, but, you know, running through your, the terms and conditions on your, uh, contract. So I know, um, Abby Woodcock and her freelance co-op and, you know, she had a friend that was very big on conscious contracting and was a lawyer in New York, I believe. And I can get the name. I'm drawing a blank on her name, but talking about conscious contracting and writing things in plain English, you're not trying to do legalese and pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Uh, and it's just, it's more of like an integrity thing where you're saying, Hey, I, I'm covering this. I need to have this text in here to cover me and to cover you. Uh, here's how we're going to resolve disputes and, and just really laying that out. And you could do again, a screen share of the terms and conditions and say, okay, I've had a couple of people ask questions about ABC. I just want to address those here as you're reading through just, just really not rocket science things that, that are just, you're kind of preempting uh, objections or preempting concerns and addressing them before they can actually have them. Let's break in here to talk a little bit about a few things Jared mentioned. Let's start with empathy. 
So we talked a lot about empathy. Um, what stood out to you, Rob? You know, you and I have talked about how important empathy is in marketing and business building, but uh, what did Jared share that maybe sounded new or just stood out to you? Well, I, I think maybe the thing that stood out to me is that empathy is this thing that happens when we start to go through experiences, you know, like Jared with cancer or, you know, previous uh, people who've been on the podcast have suffered things like depression or the loss of a child or, you know, all of these things that happen in our business, loss of jobs, uh, you know, hard clients, difficult clients. And the more experience we have, the more that we develop empathy and empathy is really critical for connecting with the people that we're writing to, right? To help them understand that we really do understand the pain that they're going through. We really do understand the problem they're struggling with and, and the things going on in their lives. And if we can't capture that as copywriters, then we have we sort of miss that first hurdle, which is to connect with the, the customer, the client, so that they understand that, yep, they're being heard and that whatever we're going to say next is actually going to connect with them and solve the problem that they have. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of us sort of wish away these experiences like, you know, like Jared, you know, cancer, although he didn't wish it away. So there was a, a fantastic experience coming out on the, the end side of it. Um, but I think it's just important to realize that that's where empathy is often built. Uh, I'm not sure that I've got a lot of good ideas of how to build empathy, you know, without going through the struggle ourselves. Maybe you have some thoughts around that. Well, I, I think part of it for me is just that Jared shared a really smart reminder that I've heard before, but it's always powerful to hear it again. Just the reminder that we don't know what anybody's going through behind the scenes. And I think if you just you know, if you, we can remind ourselves of that, whether it's in business with relationship development or in copywriting when you're speaking to the audience or just walking around your neighborhood, and like not feeling frustrated by every person around you who may annoy you for whatever reason, because just everybody's dealing with their own stuff, their own baggage. And so I have to remind myself of that. I think I also feel like we have the privilege um, of talking to so many different copywriters in one-on-one -on -one calls or in small group calls where we get to hear a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff of what's going on in their lives. And you just realize, too, that everybody's got something. And like Jared said, there's no competition for struggles. So it doesn't matter if it's something little that's happening that day or something huge that's just really um, such a huge distraction and uh, long-term uh, it's all, we're all dealing with it. So I think for me, it's just more, let me just remind myself of that every day. Um, and then also, you know, it's, we can choose to share that if we want to share what we're going through. Um, that's our option just to share as we're dealing with those little struggles and big struggles, just to remind everybody, like, I'm going through stuff, you're going through stuff, like, let's share and talk through it. Yeah. And, and, you know, to have that experience, like really live the experience so that you know what that struggle feels like. I, I remember, I think it was on our podcast with Marcella Allison. She was talking about, you know, an interview she had with one of her mentors and he was asking her, you know, have you had this kind of you know, a medical condition, or if you struggle with this other thing. And, you know, she was a little taken back by it, but he was looking for somebody who experienced some setbacks, some hardships in order to be able to write at that level. And so again, just, you know, as you're going through hardships, whether it's big or small or whatever, lean into it, feel it because you can use that experience then to connect with your, your customers, the people that you're writing to later on. Yes. So be, it's okay to be more human in what we do. That that's, that's a good thing. So um, 
also what stood out to me is what Jared shared about doing the things in business that won't typically scale. And I know this is what Jared has built so much of his consulting business around, and he has been so successful because he over-delivers, because he's problem-solving and showing up in service of his clients in such a big way and doing those things, again, that won't necessarily scale. And I love that advice because I do think it's okay to want to grow your business and it's okay to want to scale your business. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you and I want to do that. And you can still want that, but also realize that those little things you can do really make a difference. And there are ways, even if you're building a larger platform, that you can still keep it intimate, even if sometimes it's harder or it takes more time. There are ways to do it. You don't have to trade that in just because you want to grow a larger business. Yeah, oftentimes I think those things that don't scale are the things, especially when we're just trying them out, we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the kinds of things that we can do to connect with our clients, whatever. But those things that don't scale are the things that end up creating the experience that is unique to you. You know, if if it's you're reaching out to clients, you know, uh, midway through a project or you're sending them gifts or you're, you know, doing something else to connect with them, maybe you've got some kind of a client portal and, um, you know, these things that are a little bit harder to scale, you know, in the way that you're serving your clients, um, that's where you start to discover those things. It's like, oh, that's a little bit of magic. And then, you know, if you can figure out a way to incorporate it into your processes uh, and and then scale it in some way, maybe it's not exactly the way that you're doing it one-on-one, but uh, that's really where you start to create that experience of working with you that is really different and that clients can appreciate. And obviously Jared has locked in on that, you know, from his early beginnings in experiential marketing to what he does with his clients today and actually creating an experience, you know, from tools and, and process and, and just, you know, the one-on-one connection that he has with them uh, really sets him apart and is something that I think a lot more of us should be emulating. Yeah. And we've done it through the Copywriter Club, um, through our one-on-one calls, right? Which you and I have talked about in some of the groups that we run, like it's hosting, running one-on-one calls with other copywriters is not scalable because you only have so much time in your day, but it's also something that can make a huge impact and can build strong relationships and has been really important, I think, to what we've built in the Copywriter Club to build a really strong foundation in a community of relationships that um, we've invested heavily in because we've spent time with those copywriters and who have become friends. So it's, again, something that's not scalable. And a lot of people will tell you, don't do one-on-one calls. Don't (laughs) spend your time doing that. But it's something I think has worked really well for us because it's so intimate and so personal and goes a long way. Yeah, that's where you have the impact. And I think doing the same thing, even if you're not working with other clients or, you know, people in a consulting role or in a coaching role, you can still do that working with your clients one-on-one, you know, check-in calls, those, you know, it's, you're, you're making that same connection. You're still able to advise them on what's going on with your process, you know, sharing marketing ideas, sharing new things that they might uh, want to try out. You know, again, going back to some of those things that makes Jared so good at, you know, connecting with his clients, you know, same principle, just a different way to apply it. Right. Your, your clients, your client will never hire you for a copywriting or marketing project and say no 
to a call with you where you're going to show up and tell them, share ideas about how to grow their business or give them feedback on their business. Um, they want that. They're hungry for that. We have to be careful with, with how much time we give them, but that's where we can over deliver. That's where we can do um, those things that don't necessarily scale, but uh, build really great client relationships. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's how Jared has grown into his 28 month long-term relationships with his clients, which we must repeat again is amazing. Um, I, I respect that so much. And so again, what stood out to me talking to Jared is just how he does pre-sell his existing clients. And he does it through what you already shared, having those weekly check-in calls, adding more time into his timelines for projects so that he can figure out ways to over-deliver and surprise them and delight them with extra deliverables and um, showing up as a problem solver so that he can solve larger problems and introduce new ideas to his clients so that he can sell them on the next project. I think it's brilliant and we've seen him do it firsthand. So if, if Jared can do it, you know, we can all do that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say showing up as a problem solver. Obviously, this is something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast and in our programs. But you know, if you don't just view yourself as a copywriter, as somebody who's just writing the copy, but you're looking for opportunities to help your clients do something bigger in their business to solve their problems, you're owning that consulting hat and really showing up in that role, then that's another thing that leads to these ongoing relationships where clients trust you, not only with that first project, which might be small, but with the larger stuff as you show up and say, hey, here's another thing that you should try, or here's a way that you can improve you know, this email sequence, or this is something that you can do with this promotion or you know, this sales page. And, and the more you show up solving problems and helping, the more they're willing to pay you to do the work. Yeah, I almost just wonder why why we don't do more of that collectively. Like, is it that we just start to self-sabotage in those client relationships or we just struggle to show up as a problem solver or to introduce new ideas that are might be out of our comfort zone because it might be like we learn something from a course we're taking, we've never offered it before, so we're afraid to offer it to our clients. But it sounds like Jared... We'll just offer it and put it out there and bring that value to his clients. So I do wonder why at least <laughs> I may get in my own way with with things like that and that pre-selling concept. Yeah, I think that's a really good question because I don't think you're alone. I, I do the same thing. And, and maybe it's because we're not showing up as that consultant or as that advisor, the real help, but we're just doing the work. We get tired of those projects or, you know, maybe we realize that the clients are getting tired of us because we're, you know, we're just taking orders or whatever. So hopefully that's something that, you know, isn't a, a massive problem across the board, but, you know, by Again, by doing some of these things that Jared is doing, uh, we can put that to bed and and really show up as a partner. Yes. So let's go back to our interview with Jared and ask him a question about the tools that he uses to support his processes. So in addition to doing all of this stuff, uh, you know, I know there's ways to make this easy. You've mentioned a couple of tools. Can we talk about the tech stack, your favorite tools for doing these kinds of things, the tools that you use in order to make it so that it's not copywriter has to do this, copywriter has to do this next, copywriter has to do this third thing. And by the end of the day, all we've done is process stuff and haven't had any time for writing. So what, what are the tools that you use to make this stuff happen? Yes. You, you know me, Rob, you know, I love tech and, and tech tools and, you know, especially in the sales process, because there's so, there's so much time sucked away that you're not paid for to work on proposals, to work on uh, prepping for sales calls and debriefing on the sales call and those things as well. So, uh, a couple of tools, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big active campaign fan, uh, just because of being able to 
watch what people are doing on your website as well as your email. So there's a lot of people I feel view Active Campaign as like a MailChimp or maybe like ConvertKit, um, but it really is your true CRM. And if you don't want to go you know, to that level, just getting something that will let you track email opens uh, is huge. And really uh, sometimes email clicks as well, if you can get something like that. Uh, and then video tools, one-to-one -one video tools. We love Loom. We uh, use Loom a lot. Uh, one thing, one tool that I've really liked uh, is Dub, D-U-B-B. Uh, and it's very similar. Uh, but when I was doing kind of some webinars, sometimes I'll do personalized video invites uh, and being able to do kind of both one-to-one -one video messaging, but also kind of do screen share if you want as well. You mentioned uh, being worthy of a sales call, that we want our prospects to, and this, these weren't your words, but be worthy of a sales call. Can you talk more about that? Like, what, what do you mean by that? How do you, how are you vetting your clients so that they are worthy of a sales call? Yes, absolutely. And and it's not like in Wayne's world, if anybody's seen it, where they're saying, we are not worthy, we are not worthy. It's not that, although I love those movies. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so many, and this kind of ties back to some email tracking and other using some other tech as well, but just making sure that they have some skin in the game before they hop on the call. Because if they're going to be a headache during the sales process, they're likely going to be a headache even more down the road. Uh, and that's really what breaks my heart is when whatever reason if you, we sign on with a client who, you know, we need the money or we sign on with a client who we know is a bit of a red flag or not a good fit, or we think they're a good fit and they, and then you start working with them and they're an absolute nightmare and it just kills your morale and kills your spirit. So in terms of ways to vet, I mean, looking at just their submissions on your contact form. So usually we have a long answer question on our contact forms. There's so many different options, but, uh, and again, you can go long on your contact form, short on your contact form. Uh, some of you've probably heard me talk about this stuff before. And yes, I geek out on this stuff. That's the, that's the UX e-commerce side of form optimization, really geeky. So, uh, but having some type of long answer question and, you know, if, if the prospect only submits, you know, three words or a sentence versus two paragraphs, three paragraphs full of juicy emotion, uh, but not to a, a red flag level where they're like, we need you tomorrow. And they're, yeah, but that's a good one. But then also just giving them, giving them an assignment, giving them some homework before your sales call to uh, have some skin in the game. So it could be a real questionnaire, uh, like a meteor questionnaire. It could be uh, watching a video and there's so many, you know, opportunities or so many different versions of assignments that you can give them before any call. And obviously you'll know is if they haven't taken the action that you want them to take, again, a little bit of a micro conversion, if we're talking about like an email sequence or something like that, it's, uh, yeah, it, you'll know that they're not going to be uh, really a fit for the call. So if you say, hey, have a look at this piece of content or have a look at this case study uh, and before our call, because it'll really address a lot of what we talk about. And if they say, hey, sorry, Kira, you know, I didn't have a chance to look at it, but let's still hop on the call. Oftentimes you can be as bold and say, hey, like we're not going to hop on the call anymore. You know, we, I want to be respectful of your time. Again, always positioning it back on them. You know, I really want to be respectful of your time. And I get asked these questions a lot. We can make the most of our time on the call if we have this tackled ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera. So really, yeah, if I had to kind of throw a bow on all that, I mean, really having them show you that they're interested before they hop on a call with you. Bold, good advice. Uh, I'm curious, anything else, you know, any other secret sauce that you, that you drip on uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the project in order to close a 28-month client? 
it never starts as a 28 month client. You know, it starts as a one project client or a three month client. And then you can change the scope. You can up the rate. You can, uh, you can change a, a lot of different, a lot of different factors, but I think really viewing it as a kind of a, 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 a trial process. Like if you, if you, if you sell the client and they close and you start working together, I think really kind of viewing that project and getting them a win as fast as possible. So that's something more kind of in the user experience crowd of kind of, if you're going to start doing usability testing and test a prototype, wanting to get some type of win within 90 days and really, cause then you can evangelize your efforts to the rest of the team. Or in this case, if you're on your own and you're working with a business owner, evangelizing your efforts to, to future work. So kind of trying to get to that win as much as possible. And maybe when you're in the sales process or you're in the onboarding phase, you can identify something. And I mentioned this kind of before about you can find at least one thing, if not more, that wasn't part of your SOW, but you know that you can deliver on. And that's just kind of an ace in the hole that you can have. And I think that really, again, changes the whole the whole uh, relationship. It's almost, uh, you know, we, we talk about aha moments and that's really a, really an aha moment when the light goes off that you're not just a gun for hire. You can bring new ideas to the table and that's that's unbelievable. When you're juggling these clients and they're, you know, on average 28 months, how many can you typically handle on your own? Is it three clients, four clients at a time? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the complexity of the work. I think it depends on how much there is. And this is <laughs> this is a good problem to have, but pretty much every client I've worked with there's too much to do and I have to kind of rein it in and really pace myself. And I think if I was to, cause I know my, my weaknesses and one of my weaknesses is forecasting bandwidth, uh, project management. So that is, and I wanted to hire a full-time project manager for a long time, but, um, yeah, that, that's what I would say is just really, that's where I think retainers or ongoing clients can really get a bad rap is because it usually comes down to boundaries and, setting setting the frame and having your client stay within that frame and i think uh the number of clients i mean it, it varies i mean right now i'm working with four um but i wouldn't say that's <laughs> i would say that's a that's a lot well let's talk more about the boundaries piece because that's i had a feeling it was three or four because we know your business and we've talked to you about it um uh, so you know you're you're delighting them you're giving them these extra wins you're over delivering you're doing all the right things but like you said, with four clients, that can that can start to be a lot, especially if you're mostly doing all the work on your own. So how have you learned to protect those boundaries, to, to set the boundaries, then protect them, especially when you are someone who is you know an overachiever and wants to overdeliver? So much there. I think having it in terms and conditions, first off, about uh, until you get a feel for the client and, you know, having priming them and almost coaching them or teaching them as early as possible in your relationship. So you don't have to go back and change or become a new person two months in. And all of a sudden you have to be this, uh, you know, hard nosed person that, uh, it, it seems unreasonable or they, it's all about kind of eliminating surprises. But I think also having some type of check-in, whether it is a weekly call or, uh, and you know, one of my old mentors mentioned this a lot is just kind of saying, to not, if you're working with an ongoing client, to not give them at least more than a week without hearing from you, like at least be proactive in communication, and that can go a long way, and that can buy you so much leeway. And you know, unfortunately, with you know, with some health stuff and a little bit of lingering, uh, you know, I've I've had the odd kind of health issue while I've been working with clients, and you know, just having 
the over delivering helps not not scope wise not not doing work for free but that that definitely helps but also just being proactive in communication and saying hey you know because you don't want that adult version of the dog ate my homework when they come calling and they're like hey where's this deliverable and you're like uh sorry i i had a really good reason right where you know you know if something is just be honest be transparent and for me it comes back to integrity and um yeah, I remember Joe told Joanna told me like way back in the day, if you if you just show up when you're going to show up and deliver when you say you're going to deliver, you'll be better than, you know, probably 90% of people out there, or 80% of people out there, like the fibers and the upworks and all these, nothing against those platforms at all. But, um, you know, just and again, just being proactive in communication. And I think, again, and over delivering as much as you can. I want to make a joke here about feeling attacked, especially when you talk about letting clients not hear from you for more than a week or whatever. But um that might be hitting a little too close to home for some of us. So uh, I'm just going to change the subject a little bit. Rob, you, don't ghost, you, don't, you don't ghost your clients. I don't ghost them, but I definitely don't always talk to them every week. And I think there's maybe something uh, something I can do better there for sure. But I, I want to talk about pricing as well, Jared, because I know these aren't necessarily retainer clients where you're billing. Maybe maybe some of them are. I don't know. But you know, you're not necessarily getting you know $3,000 per client per month or whatever. And so what does, you know, when you're working with a client like this and you're actually consulting with them and identifying problems to solve for them, what did those kinds of projects look like from a scope perspective and a price perspective? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I think really straddling the line between strategy and execution and knowing, knowing how long things take you. And that is a really loaded one and that is incredibly hard, but, uh, tracking your internal time as much as possible. Uh, even if it, even if it's humbling and really <laughs> convicting almost, if you've spent, you know, I spent 10 hours on research for this landing page and you're like, Oh, okay. Um, and looking for opportunities to kind of obviously be more efficient, but, uh, really, and if you don't know how long things take you, I mean, a, a retainer or an ongoing client can sometimes be a good thing because you can, you can have that wiggle room and, you know, take extra time, or maybe it's something that you want to learn, uh, or get better at. And you're not fully, I don't, fully streamlined yet. You can you can have a bit of extra leeway than if it's a project that is you know in three weeks or something like that. You can stretch it out, and so I think that's again a big a big thing people don't look at with retainers or ongoing clients is they do afford you some flexibility if you're able to contain them, and they do afford you, yeah, like I said, just some flexibility that you you may not always get with just a kind of a project-based client and the longer you're with someone and the longer the relationship and you get to know, you know, their kids' names, their pet names, you know, what they do for fun. And, you know, you can do a little client gift and there's, there's so many opportunities to, to, again, I don't want to use the word delight, uh, but from a scope perspective, I mean, it really ranges. So if I was to have a more strategy, uh, more consulting type of arrangement, you know, with a little bit of execution rather than heavy on execution and limited on consulting, having at least a weekly call, and factoring that time and really, uh, again, having learned this the hard way, factoring in, you know, kind of cleanup time or prep time where, you know, you're obviously going to have to prepare for the call and then you're obviously going to have to recap. And there's certain things you can automate there too. Uh, but that can be a huge time suck where you, you say you have a half an hour weekly call. It's never a half an hour weekly call. And even if you book double and you're like, no, I'll book an hour and I'll bill four hours for, uh, you know, four weekly half hour calls. There's usually more than that. And again, tracking this stuff, because this can be a silent killer of your margins and your profit. And I know, Rob, you have that awesome training uh, in the underground with profit, um, because that's just something that a lot of 
us don't really look at. You look at the number on the SOW, but you don't factor in how many hours that's taken or how much time you've spent on it. If you even want to do it again at that rate or at that timeline. I want to pivot and talk about your, one of your packages, the customer journey mapping. And maybe we've covered parts of this, but if I want to offer something similar with my clients, then how should I approach a project like that? Say I've never done it before, um, but it's an offer I want to add, you know, to, to my website. What do I do to get started? Depends on first thing I would say is if you're doing the, the research and the map, or if you're actually doing the implementation as well. So a big differentiator, if you're doing the, if you're plugging things into active campaign or you're not doing that and you're doing the voice of customer research and mapping it that way, that is still a great deliverable. So I think, um, really, I know buyer personas and things like that usually get a bad rap or, or a lot of, um, a lot of interview tactics for content marketing and types of content people are having in the sales process. Um, but really that, that buying journey interview is, you know, between five to 10 interviews based on each customer segment. Uh, that's a, that's a great start and being able to draw trends out of those interviews and kind of map a, a journey with direct quotes to build empathy for the user and, and those kinds of things. Uh, and then you can, you know, there's a lot of stuff online, look up like Nielsen Norman group as well, um, to basically look at the actual deliverable. And the reason I'm hesitating is because a customer journey map, there's no gospel way to have it look. So chances are the client you're working with, especially if you're bringing something user experience to the table there, they might, they may not have done it before. So really you can like, there's no right or wrong answer with how a journey map looks. So, uh, I mean, I can definitely give you a template if you want to try out, but, uh, just being able to just try it and, and have the, the quotes and the, the, the journey as well of each stage of the buying process. So, uh, and because we're copywriters and we have hopefully read breakthrough advertising and the stages of awareness that, you know, a lot of, when you look at the UX crowd or you look at the traditional kind of customer journey mapping, the stages of the journey map are not really to do with, you know, problem aware, solution aware, um, product aware, most aware, and that can be a, a really cool, um, lens to look at a customer journey map through, uh, and not to mention, we're probably more familiar with that than any other type of, you know, interest, like interest decision or consideration decision and the kind of traditional kind of funnel stages. Yeah. Can we go back to something that you mentioned when we first started talking and that is, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you had gone through some periods where you had not prospected and you realized how important prospecting is. So tell us about how you connect with new clients now, how you build that network, you know, what you're doing to build relationships so that when you hit month 28 or month 35 or whatever it is and, and the client relationship ends, how do you bring on the new client or, or you're ready to bring on that new client? What does your prospecting look like? Yeah, I mean, let me just paint the scenario of what actually happened because I'm not gonna stand here and say, you know, have it all figured out. And this was a couple of years ago where I was balancing two pretty, pretty heavy retainer clients. So they were the only ones at the time and yeah, kind of, uh, kind of thrill seeking. Cause if one goes half of your income is gone. But, um, so I actually had both go in the span of a month. So, uh, one, one client had fired their CEO and the new CEO, there was somebody internally who didn't like me and the partner I was working with. So for whatever reason we got, we got turfed. And then this was right before I went on a mission trip to Japan through my church. And while I was away, 
the other, an, another client I had, um, uh, had basically been Delta, been Delta blow. And they had to basically, I got this email while I was away saying, you know, scrap the project we're working on flat out. So then it kind of came back to, okay, so we're going to learn from this and, and never do this again. So that's just kind of a, a visualization. You know, I can talk about prospecting and talk about filling your pipeline, but, uh, yeah, I've also had that circumstance as well. So I'm not just, uh, <laughs> not just saying that it's always, you know, wait list and all gumdrops and rainbows, but in terms of pro prospecting kind of tying to what I was saying earlier on about doing what doesn't scale. And for me, just loving that and being able to go to a lot of conferences, obviously, uh, not as much maybe in the, in the future, but, uh, a lot of the way I kind of built my network was, uh, conferences and events and groups and not going in as that person wanting clients. You know, I think of almost like the, like the person with cocaine on their nose, who's kind of just sniffing it and like, Hey, you got any of those clients? Hey, you know, you got any of those recommendations? And, uh, you know, I just think I like your face, but, um, yeah, but I, but I think, just going in genuine, genuinely and, you know, with integrity and just wanting to kind of serve and provide help to, to people and genuinely care. And that's a, a big rapport builder thing on sales calls, but, uh, just, just being genuinely interested in their business and, it, and it usually capturing some way to follow up. And that has been, that has been huge. And, um, there's been intentional ways to, to prospect and build my pipeline, but then there's also been, uh, unintentional ways, you know, through unexpected referrals where, I have gotten through, you know, a sales process with someone and they say, Hey, we're actually splitting the company. So we're gonna have to take a bit of a backseat for right now, but Hey, let me introduce you to X, Y, Z. And that's just a, a nice kind of fallout option. But again, having clients for a much longer period, uh, helps that. And, but I'm, I'm still always kind of having people staying in contact with people and, uh, really networking to be able to, uh, be top of mind with people and being genuine. And that could mean, Hey, you're recording a short loom clip and sending them and say, Hey, I, I noticed with your new site, you know, this, this block could use a better subheading and, you know, it's been a while since we chatted or like, again, a, a, an example off the top of my head. Uh, but really there's ways to just stay top of mind and, and let people know what they're, um, you know, what you've been up to. And again, this is from somebody who, you know, for me, never being online, really, you know, new website coming up, uh, and maybe some social media, but uh, like maybe Instagram, but apart from that, like I haven't been anywhere online and, uh, it's all been offline. So I have this big network offline and love a lot of people and talk a lot one-on-one -on -one with people. But, um, yeah. And I think people even at, like, I've had people ask me like, why do you, you know, why do you go to these conferences or why do you just, you know, talk to these people? Like, are you trying to get them as clients? And I'm like, no, just keeping, keeping tabs on them, keeping, keeping tabs and, and being personable and, and just being top of mind with people. Because we're talking about conferences. I mean, you are more extroverted. I feel like it's fair to say, right? I would say, yeah. I mean, ambivert, I think like I definitely need my time to recharge and I, you know, I read and, and I, I like, I like my own alone time. That's for sure. <laughs> but you are social, right? You figured out, you know, the, the networking scene. What tips would you give, especially as things are opening up, we may start going to more events over the next year. What tips would you give to someone who might be um, more of an introvert or just, you know, a little bit less familiar with the networking scene? It feels awkward. What are some simple tips just to make it a little bit less awkward? Sometimes not even talking about work, you know, and especially if you're not sure how to answer the what do you do question or if you're if you're stuttering it, obviously practicing that is good. But some of the best conversations I've had with speakers and 
other attendees at a conference have just been about non-work related things. And then it's down the road when they say, Hey, what is it that you do? And you say, Oh yeah, no. And, and you, you, you build that rapport first about, you know, video games or music or what, you know, whatever it is and kind of show some of your personality there too. And, and I think just not being that person, like I was kind of saying you know, with my kind of over the top analogy, but not wanting to be that person that, you know, is, is because you can see them from a mile away where they're trying to hand out their business card. They're trying to say, Hey, I'd love to book a call, et cetera, et cetera. And you can just tell you're not genuine. Um, but I think especially with conferences is having a plan and, you know, this is something that I, oh my gosh, I could talk about for a long time and I'll save you all that, but really having a plan and lurking the, um, the agenda ahead of time and making sure that you have a plan to stick around after the speaker talks because they always stick around for, for Q and a, and that has been a huge thing is, you know, just getting on the map from a certain speaker. And especially if they're at, if it's somebody you're, I don't know, fanboying or fangirling over or whatever it is, or maybe they're influential. And especially if they're at the same conference multiple times, they'll remember you. And then maybe you, again, play the long game a little bit where you follow up with them, introduce yourself, ask them a great question. And that's a big thing too. Remember speakers, they get asked after their session all the time about, people were saying, Oh, Hey, um, I got to ask you this thing about my business. And it's very self-serving. It's very like me, 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 me. And it's like, how can you really go against the grain and, and offer something to help the speaker and say, you know, an opportunity to deliver value to them, uh, or maybe somebody in their network. Uh, and then again, that goes against necessarily the, the, the motive to ask them something about you or to get on their radar that way. But it, most of the time it works, it works a lot better. So in short, the TLDR have a plan before the conference. Usually now there's pre-conference, um, networking, or they'll open up a Slack group ahead of the conference. So many opportunities there to be visible, especially if in person's not your thing. Uh, but definitely looking at the agenda, who's speaking, what's their topic, doing some research ahead of time and having a plan for when you go. So Jared, we're going to run out of time here and I want to make sure that we ask about some of the stuff that you're doing in your business today. I know you're putting together a workshop that focuses on UX, experience, tech, some of the stuff that we've covered here. Tell us a little bit about that and and what that's uh, all about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really evolved a lot over the the, the time I've been in business, but uh, essentially this year for me has just been a thing of just wanting to serve and wanting to help other business owners. And that's a theme for me going forward pretty much indefinitely. And, you know, not to sell a massive evergreen course or anything like that, but just wanting to help other business owners kind of forget or no, sorry, uh, avoid the mistakes that, that I've made and also kind of help them specifically with the sales process. Um, and kind of what I was talking earlier about, uh, owning that process and, uh, calling the shots at, throughout the process and kind of looking a lot more professional as you go. So, uh, and doing that in kind of a short implementation focused, uh, container. So, maybe over four weeks and we're able to really, um, get a lot done in that time and focus on implementation. Uh, and then if you run into a hiccup or something, I go in and help you with it. Uh, so very hands-on and again, not, not scalable in the sense of wanting it to be videos you watch, everything's live. Uh, but I think that's way more fun because I love actually working with people. So as you've decided that you want to serve more people and move your business in a new direction beyond just the one-on-one -on -one consulting services that you currently offer, what are some changes you've made over the last year to start moving in that direction? We've seen some of them firsthand with you, know, with you in the roundtable, but can you talk about what you do when you re realize, I want to work with larger groups and help in a bigger way? Yeah, I think just 
wanting to help across the board, I think, and being genuine about it. And, you know, the, the Glengarry Glen Ross, you know, always be closing or always be, uh, selling, but for me, it's kind of always be message mining, I guess. And just, you know, having friends, helping them with their business. And, you know, I've hopped on calls with people and again, this doesn't scale, this isn't billable time, but I've helped people migrate tools and talk to them about different things and, and just learning and seeing trends and problems and doing, um, you know, doing trainings in different groups. And, you know, that's, that's been great. And yeah, I mean, I think really just focusing on walking alongside people, I think that's really what I enjoy most. And I mean, sure, it'd be great to have a course and to, to do things like that. But I love being alongside you as much as we can in, <laughs> in video era. Um, but just really wanting to kind of help because I, I, I know that feeling and I hate that feeling of whether it's sales or tech or anything like that. And just the frustration of kind of being a fish out of water and kind of being on your own and uh, not really having someone to to walk through a specific problem. So that's kind of what I'm looking at from the workshop perspective too, is just um, quick wins or one specific win in like a half day workshop that, you know, we, we work through together as opposed to it being a, you know, course with videos that you watch and, and do all these things. I like, I like working with you and right alongside you. So, so I want quick wins. When does this start? When are you, when are you kicking off? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, next month, so we are, I would say in June, 2021. And then, um, there's two, two things. So that four week program will exist. I'm sure a couple of times throughout the year. Uh, and that's just again, to kind of have a quick, a quick injection and improvement of what you're already doing and then doing at least one, uh, half day monthly workshop on a specific topic and a specific outcome that we can do as a group and then be in a breakout room, pop in and help you out with something as opposed to it just being you listening to me talk for a couple hours. Cause nobody wants that. So that's the end of our interview with Jared McDonald. Before we go, there are a couple of things that I think we should emphasize and, and maybe just uh, you know follow up on. Number one, you know, we, we started out by talking about tools that support the process. Jared shared a couple of his favorite tools, but uh, and even though I'm the one that asked that question, I think it's really important to realize it's not really about the tools. There are tools to do everything. In fact, there's probably three or four or five, maybe even more choices of tools to do the things that you need to do. It's really about finding the tools that support the processes the way that you go through them. And so, you know, you can say, you know, I like this email service provider. You know, I like ConvertKit versus Entreport versus uh, ActiveCampaign. But which of those really helps you solve the problem that you have in your business that supports the processes that you have and lean into that because one is not necessarily better than the other. They're all a little bit different and you know, your processes are going to be a little bit different from somebody else's. So don't get hung up on, oh, I need to use Dubsado or I need to use Basecamp or, you know, I can't, you know, do something if I'm not in Kartra or, you know, whatever the shopping cart tool is or, or you know, again, whatever the tool is, don't get hung up on that. Find a tool that supports the way you work and just lean into it. And don't worry that it's the right one as long as it's helping you get stuff done. Yes, I do not use a ton of tools in my business. I never have. And I've been okay, even though I do not keep up with all the tools. But I am, you know, I am listening and paying attention to see what tools are out there, what other marketers are using just so if there is if I find the right tool I could always add it I don't want to be ignorant about every single tool out there but just know if you're not super tool savvy it's okay you just need the basics to keep the business going yeah and then 
Jared also talked a little bit about some of his processes, you know, and, and we mentioned, you know, processes for vetting clients. We've talked about red flags before on the podcast when you and I have shared some of the red flags that we've seen in our business and, and things keep us from moving forward. But knowing what those are, setting up a process, whether it's an intake form, again, using, you know, all kinds of tools, you know, jot form or type form, or, you know, maybe it's an email system, whatever. It could even be a quiz. Um, but just having a process that helps you see something about your clients beforehand so you can identify, oh, this this project could go sideways and either be prepared for it or say no and and you know pass on the project altogether. Yeah, Jared talks about pre-call assignment selling, which I think is brilliant. And I know that's something that he teaches in his workshops that he offers, but it's so smart. I have not done uh, pre-call assignment selling. I feel pretty good about the form my intake form where I can vet clients and prospects and usually weed out uh, the ones that might be a red flag potentially. But I love this idea of taking that to the next level and giving a prospect an assignment before that sales call just to um, help help them connect with you and figure out are they the right client for you or not. And I think that's just such a brilliant idea and such a great reminder that we are in control of our sales process and we get to choose who we work with and who we don't work with. And we are just as much interviewing our prospects as they are interviewing us. So it is okay to give them an assignment as long as it's intentional and there is some thinking behind it, right? You're not just giving them a random article to read, but it actually speaks to the process that you're about to introduce them to. And I'm sure that Jared talks about this in his workshop, but there's a psychological principle that's going on here. You know, when you give that assignment to a client and they put in time and energy into, you know, whether it's filling out a form or doing something else, like because they've put time into it, the the principle of consistency suggests that they will continue on with the project. And so not only is it smart from a vetting standpoint and figuring out, do you really want to work with this person? But it's also a, a you know, a, a persuasion technique that that may help sell them on working with you the other way. Right. Or at least it helps you stand out from if they're talking to four other copywriters, you're probably the only one giving them a pre-call assignment. (laughs) And so they're going to think about you differently and think, hey, this person's taking this really seriously. Um, I I need to, you know, check check them out and uh, see what they're up to. Jared also mentioned, you know, this idea of showing up and delivering what you say, that that makes you better than 90% of other copywriters. I know it was almost just kind of an aside. We didn't talk really deep about that, but that's something that we've heard from a lot of people. Uh, I remember Paris Lampropoulos, you know, he mentioned that the very first time he spoke at TCC IRL back in 2018. He's like, you want to be in the top 10% of the copywriters? Show up, do the work, deliver on deadline, and you're already there. And I think, you know, again, it's just nice to to be reminded that there are a lot of people out there that do not deliver on what they promise. And you can set yourself apart from all of them simply by doing that one thing. And then, you know, if you're a great copywriter, you start adding on this other stuff that we've been talking about with Jared, that's going to put you in the top 5%, the top 1%, and it really helps move your business forward. Yeah, that's something that I've worked on. I've been working on for the past few years is is just, yeah, delivering what I say I'm going to deliver when I say I'm going to deliver it because I tend to be one of those people who can overpromise. And so I have to be very careful with what I'm promising and then just the expectation around is this realistic or not so I can actually deliver it. But I think if you know you struggle with that and you get on a sales call and you like to overpromise and then you're like, ah, how am I actually going to do this? Then this is definitely something that you... <laughs> 
might be worth paying attention to because like you said, it can affect your business. Yeah. And one other thing that just kind of, you know, perked my ears up just a little bit is, you know, Jared mentioned, you know, the, the desperate copywriter with Coke on the nose, you know, sniffing out clients or, you know, being that, yeah, it's good. It's really good metaphor, but like being that desperate for clients is a really good way to turn them off. And so, you know, you, you have to be able to turn away work. That's really hard to do when you need the money, when, you know, rents do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, clients do smell desperation. And if you come on, like you need the project, you need, you know, the money uh, that you're desperate for the work that often undermines your ability to sell the quality, the transformation, you know, the value that you can bring to the table. And so just be really careful, even if you are desperate, not to project that when you're talking with clients. Yeah, that's so tricky because it's easy to say that. And I feel like I'm at a point now where I don't feel desperate for client work, but it's so it's easy for me to show up on a sales call and, and vet prospects and ask them a billion questions and decide if I want to work with them or not. But that's not how we start. And so um, I, I think it's the, the part that you do control is how you market your business. And so if you feel like you're showing up in desperation, might you know show up in your sales calls because you really do need that project and you don't have any other sales calls lined up. Um, what you can control is how frequently you market, how consistently you market and show up in front of your ideal clients so that you can create the demand. We do control that. We control our marketing and we control the demand that we're creating for our services. And so maybe you are feeling desperate and that's something that you can work through by just again, focusing on what you can control. And you're right. I, you know, I certainly don't mean to, to say, oh yeah, this is an easy thing to do. It is not an easy thing to not come across desperate when you are desperate, but uh, yeah, follow the advice that you just gave. I think that's, that's really good. What else? Is there anything else that stood out from uh, this half of the, the interview? Yeah. I mean, a couple yeah. Having a plan for networking. So we know Jared is a great networker. He is, I mean, if you don't know him, you just, you need to get to know him. He is such a social person. He's just so fun to be around. He's just, he's one of my favorite people. And, um, and so I love getting networking advice from him because I have seen him in action. He does it really well. And so I think the part that I took away from it is just to be intentional about it. And I know the past year we haven't really been networking at in-person events. So I'm out of practice, but when I do start going again and traveling and paying for conferences, if I'm going to be there and take time away from my family and invest money and travel and, and the event, I want to be really clear about what my expectation is for that event, what I plan to get out of that event. And so um, I think, again, it's just a really great reminder to be intentional about our time, and especially if we're investing in those events. What what is the goal? What do you want to get out of it? Do you just want to meet with one particular person? Great. Then have a plan around that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've obviously spent time with Jared in person, but one of the things that makes that so easy for him is that he's just, he comes across and I, and I think this is sincere. He's interested in other people. You know, the questions that he asks, it, it's not small talk. He really does care and wants to know more about you, your business, you know, so it just, I think is natural for him to ask those questions. If that doesn't come naturally, then maybe it's a good idea just to have, you know, a, a set of questions that you have in the back of your head or whatever that, you know, you can ask people to go a little bit deeper than, you know, the typical small talk, but, you know, ask about the problems that they you know, may be having in their business or ask about, you know, what's going on in their personal life and just be interested in the people that are on the other side of the conversation. Yes. And um, as we wrap up, what I will just also note is that it's been so, it's been so enjoyable 
to me to see Jared's growth over the last year that we've been able to work with him in the mastermind and just to see how he's really pivoted from excellence working one-on-one with his consulting clients and now pivoting to this new space where he's working one-to-many and offering workshops and group programs and and starting to market in new ways and show up in bigger ways and help and serve more people, many copywriters too, in the community that he's helped with sales processes and um, tech automations. And so it's really, it's really been fun to see this change in his business and, um, and it's worth, you know, connecting with him or getting on his list to see some of the workshops he's putting together because they really, he does approach business in such a different way because of the way his brain works, where it's just, he's got the tech automation side combined with the consulting side, uh, combined with the sales background. So I've learned so much from him and uh, I just hope more people can connect with him. I agree 100%. He's definitely worth connecting with. So we want to thank Jared McDonald for joining us to chat about his business and his approach to keeping clients happy for years. You can learn more about Jared at mrjaredmack.com and make sure you check out his workshop series by visiting mrjaredmack.com backslash TCC, where he's shared his customer journey template and some other stuff you might like. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our Intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave a review of the show. That helps other people find the show. And if you're ready to invest in yourself, your copywriting business, and really move towards achieving your goals, visit copywriterthinktank.com. We're just adding a few new members this month, and you could join us next month, but only if you visit copywriterthinktank.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money.